Welcome to Season 6 of the Do More Good podcast, a selection of interviews with the movers and shakers from the third sector and beyond, telling the stories of people doing more good. I'm James, fundraiser at Blood Cancer UK, Marie Curie and now a Sue Rider. I'm also treasurer of the events fundraising group of the CIOF and Bexley Cross Country Champion 1994. And I'm Kenneth, proud fundraiser from my time working for Alzheimer's Research UK, now the charities lead at London Marathon Events where I get to work with thousands of brilliant and amazing charities, father of three football-obsessed children and co-host of the Do More Good podcast. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. The Do More Good podcast. Uh, welcome to Do More Good podcast. Do More Good Good, do more. Do more good podcast. Do more good podcast. That's what you want me to say. Okay. You're listening to the Do More Good podcast. Right, here we are, James, episode number 82 of the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing? Kenneth, very well, very well. It's the third time I've seen you this week. I know. Firmly back. Good Privileged. to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right, thank you. And and you've you've dressed up for the occasion today. That's a lovely fetching blue shirt you've got on there. It almost oh, contrasts into the background. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> you gave me stick on the last one. Actually, I think it was pre-recording about wearing a t-shirt. And this time I get dressed up. Still, I can't avoid it, can I? Yeah. Well, yeah. I've got some standard free issue t-shirts going on. So that didn't make an appearance at the the last one. We were we were hosting. We had video and everything, didn't we? On we the did. Last one. We did. Dressed up for that. Yeah, that was a good session, wasn't it? We had a, a session last week with Salesforce and Resource Alliance talking to, to fundraisers about digital innovation. That was really interesting. And we actually managed to put it out as a podcast. So I think that should be out now if anybody is listening. Talking of dressing up, you've Go been on. clearing out the cupboards, haven't you? You called me this morning. We, we were chatting before seven this morning uh, and you've been clearing out the cupboards. What do you find? Oh, yeah, I've been having a bit of a clear out. So for those who've been listening over the last few months, we've been in eight, eight months into a home renovation. So we're now into that phase of putting all of the crap that we took out back into the rooms. And yeah, made of discovery. My wife threw a bag at me last night and in there were 25 ties. And I was like, who bloody needs 25? Who needs a tie anytime these yeah. days, right? When yeah. was the last time you, the last time, actually, I can remember the last time I wore a tie was when me and my colleague at work, we had a big announcement to make on the all staff meeting. So we dressed up as American presidential candidates and oh. put a tie on. But yeah, you must have a nice array of ties. Go with that oh, fetching shirt, haven't you? <laughs> Fine selection of ties. <laughs> yeah, pocket squares, ties, bow ties. Got the cummerbunds. Got the lot. They're all oh, just a waste. A bit waste, of everything. Yeah. But yeah. just the, before we get into look, our, our guest is, is, is patiently wait, waiting there, and we'll come on to his experience and background. And he does have a bit of experience in the in the field of comedy. And we know James. I mean, you like to think of yourself as a as a bit of a comedian. You've had a had a few <laughs> had a few minutes on the stage, haven't you? Why don't you t- tell the audience about your comedy debut? Well, uh, th- yes, there was the uh, Deansfield School comedy night that I was asked to compare. But compared to our guest, I mean, I'm going to get shown up here, aren't I? This is this is going to be a humiliation. Well, I think everyone will enjoy. I mean, and, and typically on the Do More Good podcast, we, we tend to revolve around three long running repeated jokes, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, what we got? Go on, top three. There's the three listeners. Generally, actually, whatever I happen to be wearing, that always seems to, yeah. to work its, its way in. 
and you obviously not buying the not buying the drink not buying the drink so yeah hopefully we can take some inspiration from our guest and maybe we'll have three new ones by the end of it look let's let's crack on with the episode really excited about today as you said james we were chatting half past seven this morning going really looking forward to today's guest so we'll crack on with the introduction so our guest this week is an award-winning stand-up comedian mental health campaigner and charity ceo he founded and runs the multi-award-winning national mental health charity Chasing the Stigma, which he established following his own battle with depression and suicide attempt in 2013. From a place of despair and personal turmoil, our guest created the Hub of Hope, a groundbreaking mental health database that has since become the UK's biggest and most comprehensive mental health signposting tool, revolutionising mental health pathways in the UK. Described as the Dalai Lama of mental health by Davina McCall in 2017, after going public about his mental health struggles and recovery, our guest has continued to advocate for those with lived experience of mental health issues, whilst also highlighting the importance of acknowledging that we all have mental health to look after. He was appointed the CEO of Chasing the Stigma in February 2018 and has driven the charity forward to become one of the fastest rising and well-respected mental health charities in the UK, with the Hub of Hope being recognised at the BIMA, Third Sector Care and Charity Times Awards, all within our guest's first year in post. And then in 2018... Our guest developed the Ambassador of Hope Mental Health Training Programme, a fully accredited and accessible training programme, making it easier for organisations to equip all members of staff with the knowledge to talk about mental health confidently within the workplace. And the training has since been rolled out to thousands of participants across a variety of sectors, working with organisations such as the Premier League and government offices. Our guest is also a lifelong and long-suffering Everton fan, a self-confessed Bruce Springsteen fanatic. Most importantly, though, he's a husband to Rachel and a dad to Teddy and Nancy. We'd like to welcome Jake Mills to the Do More Good podcast. How are you doing, Jake? That sounds all right, that, doesn't it? <laughs> Firstly, we've got to say, with a degree in journalism, a background in broadcasting and a passion for writing... You certainly sent us the best bio we've received in almost a hundred <laughs> episodes. <laughs> Didn't yeah, need yeah. any editing. I uh, did, did it stop, but um, I'm regretting wearing a tie now. <laughs> brought it all back down. Classic. How, how does it feel listening back to the the bio that you sent us? I mean, this there's some real this like amazing achievements, ups and downs through that. It must be nice to hear it all back. It is. I, I don't know. I'm not not necessarily somebody who stops to to appreciate things that's not a good thing i'm not not like that's not like a humble brag i think i naturally just go okay what 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 am i doing today and just get on with it and sometimes it's it's nice to to hear that and you know especially with like two young kids and stuff you just every day you feel like you're just getting up going to work coming home making them some chicken nuggets eating the chicken nuggets that they leave going to bed and doing the same again the next day so it's nice to be able to do these things and 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 hear that because i am proud Uh, i don't i don't think i say that really enough but i am proud it's nice it was a nice way of hearing that and then the dalai lama of of mental health I, I, i feel like don't know what that means <laughs> but, <laughs> well i'll take it it sounds like something you put on your cv so there it is yeah how, how did you meet the davina then what was what was the context behind that comment so uh, i done a show with, with davina uh, talking about mental health and there was a number of people there really influential and, and inspirational people who were just talking about things and i was talking absolutely 
like broken biscuits and you know a lot of things which I'm sure you'll find out today is I just fill I fill gaps of silence with just like a stream of consciousness and that's what I was doing and she just came out with that quote and I was like I'm having that I'll put that, <laughs> put that somewhere yeah. That's, basically, that's basically what we have done over the last 80 odd episodes don't worry about it you're in you're in good company Excellent. there so jay we'd like just to take you back to to early life broadcast journalism degree award-winning comedian broadcaster charity founder ceo was that always part of the plan when you kind of started your the world of work and, and your adult life never would i imagine i'd be doing anything as responsible as running a, a charity my ambition, my my dream is always to to make people laugh. I, it, to me, it just it, it seemed like a like a superpower. I was I was a shy kid. I still am, you know, quite shy. And I, I think with with stand up comedy, I always thought that is like that's just one of the most amazing things anyone can do. And I remember going and, and watching comedians and in big like arenas and sold out tents and stuff where you just see hundreds and thousands of people from all different backgrounds of all different ages people who would never be in the same room together who'd never talk to each other totally completely contrasting type of people and they were coming together and watching a comedian tell a joke that would make them all laugh in unison and for me it's just like that's what, what can be better than that and it was just it mesmerized me and the thing for me was that i was i was the shy kid who fell in love with that but didn't ever think I could do it so I went to I went to uni to to like study kind of yeah looking at television looking at radio looking at journalism trying to find what I could do and it was at uni that I met a couple of tutors who one was a comedian and one was a writer for the comedian and then they just kind of introduced me to that world and just I immediately just yeah just fell in love with with performing and uh, again, you know, I've just said there about it, it was like a superpower, but I think for me, as as a really insecure, shy, nervous young lad, to get on stage, you had the microphone, you were louder than everybody else, you were bigger than everybody else because you were stood on the stage, you had the spotlight. I could say whatever I wanted yeah. to yeah. anybody in that room, and that was amazing for me. So, you know, that's I, one I didn't ever think I'd really be doing. I didn't know how to get into it, but I certainly didn't think that I'd be then running a, a national mental health charity. I mean, I don't know whether you've ever compared the Deansfield School Parents' Evening. Uh, it's quite, it's quite a big one. Uh, I've heard on, on the circuit. I've heard <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a big one on the circuit. But is that part of? Obviously, you you say you're a, you were a shy kid, pushing yourself out of your boundaries. You you've deliberately gone after something which is, by all accounts, utterly terrifying. Is that something that you find yourself doing in life? Is setting yourself big challenges and putting yourself out there and going for it, or was it just the comedy stuff? Was it just that you really wanted to do? Uh, I suppose you're probably right. I don't know. I think you you start to learn things about yourself as you as you get a little bit older, and I think maybe. It is something that I, I certainly do now. I'm quite competitive, but particularly with myself. But um, I think this, the thing with, with comedy is it gave me confidence. It gave me... I, I think I, I probably had belief in my ability. You know, by, by no means I, I was the best comedian that, that that was out there but it just gave me a confidence gave me like you know go ahead just just try and and the thing with comedy as as you'll know as a you know a comedian yourself 
you don't know if you can do it until yeah, you do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's not like you know you can you can be in a pub with your, with your mates or you can you know you can do stuff at parties and all that. But until you are on that stage, you don't know if you can do it or not. And that's the scary thing. And and so when I went to do this course, I don't know even if I thought, yeah, I'm going to get on the stage, but that's kind of what they were teaching. You know, you can't really necessarily teach you to be funny, but they can give you a platform. And then just getting on that stage and getting that first laugh, I was like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. So I've never, I've never seen it as a brave thing. I've never seen it as a scary thing. And I think if I ever did, I probably would never have done it. But for me, it was just something that you go, it just it just felt right. It just yeah. felt right. And I said it gave me confidence. Well, I guess you're never gonna have a more vulnerable place. You're never gonna have a conversation that's more difficult than that. So if you can get yourself through sounds like night of the Apollo, then you know, you're gonna be fine in any other situation. Anything else somebody can throw at you won't be as tough as that. Well, you say that, but I'd I'd very happily, very happily get on stage in front of two thousand people, do that. Be nervous, of course, I would. I'd rather do that than walk into like a situation where you're in a room with a load of people who you've never met before and you've got to do like networking. You know, I'd I'd rather speak to two thousand people on a stage <laughs> than take me kids to a baby toddler group and I've never been there before and just be in a room with a load of mums who go every week. Absolutely put give me two thousand people every time. Quite often I guess we've heard stories of creatives and Comedians, particularly, living through the, their challenges when it comes to, to their mental health. Is is that something that you noticed during your time in the profession? Yeah, it is. I, I always remember I was performing at the Comedy Store in, in Manchester. And I, I remember at the time, it was Jason Cook, I think. And he said his wife was doing a, like a PhD research piece on depression in comedians. I've never, I never found out like kind of what happened with that, but I remember it backstage, and like I was only, I was only like the open spot. I was only like the the new guy, and he was saying, you know, can everyone answer these questions? And so it was something that was part of the conversation, even when I was, when I was the the new guy, the open spot. The open spot would often be the driver for other comedians as well. So what you'd do is you'd have like a headliner comedian they'd get the gig and then you would be their driver and you'd get like the 10 minute open spot uh, and then they'd give you petrol money or whatever and I remember even in those conversations they talk there'd be conversations I didn't know anything about mental health at the time but I always remembered them talking about such and such is struggling or such and such has had a breakdown or such and such has uh, got depression or you know th- there was always conversations I, I'll always remember somebody said to me when I started, you, you don't get paid for the gig. You get paid for the waiting round. You get paid for the the anxiety throughout the day, the not being able to eat properly, not being able to settle, the travelling, all those things. The, the getting on stage, that's the easy bit. It's mm-hmm. a bit that you, you want to do. That's a bit that you're happy to do. And then it's the, the come down after it, or you know, if you've had a bad gig, having to deal with all that stuff. You know, there's a lot that goes with it. It's also quite lonely. Mm. Uh, a lot of traveling, a lot of on your own. It's a bit doggy dog, especially from a, a money and financial point of view. You're competing against your peers for for jobs and gigs and no st- stability, knowing where the next money's going to come from. So I think it is something that is very, very common. But at the same time, I feel like comedy can play such a, 
a vital and important role in in many conversations and particularly difficult conversations like uh, around mental health where you can use it as a tool to open up conversations to get people talking comedy will always be my first love and my my true love and it's something that I, I still do now although I'm not necessarily going around the clubs but you know a lot of comparing and and hosting and and hosting different events and conferences and awards and stuff like that and it'll always be the the thing that that i feel like is me it's something that i can never ever be without yeah and if you need an opener or a driver james is a he's <laughs> he's looking for his first gig so yeah you know. well i mean the only qualification i've got for that is i, I do have a car um, yeah i'm <laughs> yeah. really good on the stage but i can get you there yeah. it's interesting you talk about comedy there and and the paradox of that of it, of it being funny and light-hearted and enjoyable but also there's that depression side of it as you talk about and being able to talk about serious stuff and raise serious conversations in 2013 you yourself made an attempt on on your life can you just talk us around the events around that time yeah it's um i think i mentioned just before you know i, I didn't know anything about mental health you know, I, I I was a pretty normal lad from a happy family, childhood, school life, whatever. You know, I had uh, braces and acne and glasses, so you know, and went to an all boys school. So there were certain things that happened, but I was it was generally a happy time. Didn't do um, well with the girls. Yeah, you know, I, I tried my best, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. So it was just um, not something I'd ever thought about, knew about, never taught about you know what what is mental health what is what is poor mental health what is depression what is what are the signs what are the symptoms what are the things that you can look out for what are the things that you can do absolutely none of that ever was part of my life never not in school not in social life nothing never talked about it so when i started to struggle with my mental health and and now now started to develop depression and, and anxiety i didn't know that it was a thing so I didn't know that I could get help for it. I didn't know there's things I could do to help myself. I didn't know about professional help or support. But not only that, I didn't know that it was an actual thing that I could talk about. When I started to struggle with, with it really bad, I was, you know, I don't know, 22, 23. So I'd come out of university and, and everything. I was trying to to work, trying to make it as a comedian. And I just thought with that, it's, it's just being an adult. It's just, you know, it's part of of your adulthood is that life is a bit of a struggle. And you just, it. I, I just thought that I was finding it just hard to transition. And that's probably why I didn't ever, you know, speak to anybody about it. Because I thought if I was to say to anybody, I, I feel like this, that they'd go, well, yeah. Yeah, everyone does. That's mm. that's just what we we all feel like. That we're just getting on with it. We're just better at dealing with life than what you are. So, I I didn't really ever ask for help. And what I done instead was well, a couple of things: bottle it up, try to find ways of feeling better, trying to self medicate, if you will, through uh, alcohol, and you know, thinking if I can get if I can get drunk, I can go out, I can be around people. Um, one of the things that I really struggled with was was not feeling like a man and, and feeling like in, incompetent and feeling small and feeling weak and can't defend myself and I can't you know just a lot of these things of what I thought that perception of being a man was that was never helped by any 
any other conversations or any other perspective. So I thought I'll get drunk and then I'll be all right. But instead, you know, there's insecurities, the paranoia, all these other feelings came flying out and that get me into like different fights. It get me into fights with people. And I can't stress this enough, but that is not me. It wasn't me. It wasn't mm. me before the depression. It's not me after the depression. But it was it that was the that was the depression and the anxiety and the and the the fuel of that self medication and no other release, yeah it was just it just often come flying out got me into a lot of different situations and long story short I end up getting into a fight with a bouncer, which was a close fight, I you know I end up in hospital getting me. <laughs> I, I I got my head glued back together, but uh, he was, should have seen him. Oh, have, yeah, he's absolutely fine. Ended up looking like Kenneth. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and and it was the reason I tell you this without going on a big long-winded story was because uh, as a result of that, I ended up getting offered counselling because it was part of like this, like I'm going to sue the club and about it and all that stuff. I didn't in the end, but uh, as part of that case, I was offered counselling and I took it because. I thought something's not right, and mm-hmm. when it's offered to me on a plate, when it was there saying, "Is this?" I was like, "Okay, yeah. I'll take that." So um, you could identify that yourself then. At that point, you knew there was something. You almost knew there was something not right about how you were behaving or how you were acting. That when that offer of sitting down with someone and talking about me came, you were like, "I feel like I need to take this." Yeah, mm. I, I didn't know it enough to have gone and got the support myself. Yeah and asked for help but I knew that I wasn't me I knew that I wasn't behaving like me I knew that I was hurting people and saying and acting in ways that I would never normally act yeah. I'll take it because it's under something else as well it wasn't somebody saying to me you're depressed here's help and support it was someone saying I'll oh, listen this will help your case and I was like oh okay I went to a doctor's after seeing a counsellor she reassured me about going to see a doctor and getting medication and as a 23 year old I was like I don't want medication why would I want medication I don't want to be addicted to something I don't want to live a life like a zombie I don't want to be reliant on it, all this stuff and she reassured me and I went to went to a doctor and uh, basically wasn't believed the first time just I didn't get it I had to go a couple of times because I didn't go to the counsellor knowing that something was wrong and wanting to necessarily get the help and support. And because I wasn't taking medication, particularly wanting to get better and for that, that to work, I didn't really give myself up to, to the process of recovery mm. and instead became really, really defensive and just lied. And I lied to everybody in my life. You know, I wasn't a very nice person and I lied to everyone about where I was, who I was, what I was doing, how I was feeling. But I lied to the counsellor as well. I didn't stop going, but I lied and said, oh, I'm feeling, yeah, feeling all right and doing all this stuff. And it became so good that I, I was discharged as being healthy and uh, making a great recovery. And uh, when I came out of that session, I'll always remember that I thought, what, what do you do now? Because in my mind, I and, and from my knowledge and my understanding, I only had two ways of getting better. One of them was counselling, which I'd just been discharged from. One of them was medication, which I didn't necessarily know and understand what that was and, and what it was doing to me. So when I was at that stage, I thought, well, you, you're out of options. So I just tried to just, again, just live my life and ignore it and bottle it up and get on with it and and eventually one day it just became all too much and 
the only solution I could ever I could possibly think of was to take my own life, which is not something I ever thought of before and never thought of since. But it was something that made sense from every single angle that I thought about it. Thought about my family, thought about my girlfriend, thought about everything, and it just made absolute sense for me. Mm. There's a really key point there, isn't there, around kind of identifying it in yourself or recognizing it in your in yourself and. We talk a lot in the charity sector about imposter syndrome and being in a row and not feeling like you're right for it and, and feeling out of place. But it's kind of similar there, that feeling like, oh, people with mental health must, your problems must feel like this. So that's what they look like. I've seen that on TV. I'm not, I'm not like that. I'm not, you know, and not seeing it and recognising it in yourself. Did you think your friends, with hindsight maybe, do you think your friends saw it? Because you say there you were, you were treating people badly and not how you would normally. And did anyone kind of spot it in you i think so i I think i don't think anybody knew the extent because i I, I was a good liar i only gave away what i wanted people to see but they can see a a difference in me definitely and you know as i said my parents and my girlfriend and friends probably although i did try to shut myself off from a from a lot of people as well which in itself was probably a a sign as well nobody knew to, to the extent but they definitely knew that i wasn't me but again, similar to, to how I felt and my understanding is that they don't know, really know what to do either. So a lot of people, even when they're concerned about somebody or worried about somebody, are so scared of making things worse or saying the wrong thing that they think that or feel like they're not qualified to ask a question that a lot of people just won't say nothing and hope that somebody else does instead. Mm-hmm. You know, certainly afterwards, and people people will often ask me, what was the you know the turning point for for me? Because just just very quickly, but after I after the suicide attempt, I had to, I was visited by the police, and they sat me down, basically just told me off and said, you know, you're not going to do that again. And I said no, and they just left. They didn't give me any advice, didn't give me any support, didn't give me any information, didn't ask. Am I on medication? I was speaking to a doctor. Is the anything they can do? Just left me. But the turning point for me was that after the the suicide attempt, although in some ways I felt alone because I, I was not getting any treatment, I wasn't on my own for the first time ever because my family knew what I'd done. My girlfriend knew. My girlfriend found me. And although they were really upset and horrified about everything and didn't know what to do they were just there Mm. to support me and everything that I was so scared of the reasons I didn't speak about it the reasons I lied everything I was worried what they'd say and do and treat me and you know I thought they'd hate me and, and it just all vanished very very quickly because they were just like listen we don't know what to do but we'll make sure you get better, we love you, we're here for you, and we will work with you, and, and it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what's happened, it doesn't matter what's happened before, it doesn't matter what you, what's happened today, we'll make sure, and that was the turning point in my life, was that I, I, I wasn't hiding, I wasn't mm. lying, and it was there, and I had support, and I was able to, to move on. That kind of free you up to then embrace that process, and then Actually, I can admit to how I'm feeling. I can work through this with the counsellor or, you know. Absolutely. It was almost liberating. It was like I was lifting this weight. But the point is that I very nearly didn't get that moment of clarity or or that that liberation. And and it could have very, very easily been that my 
my life was lost without me ever knowing the the truth behind that and the reality behind it and for that depression to just completely mask and cloud all of my thoughts and judgments and and understanding of the situation and and the other thing is that I was lucky that I did have a family, that I do have a family. I had a girlfriend there at the time who would be able to help me. You know, not everybody has that either. And so I was very, very lucky to be in that situation. But it was absolutely the turning point in my life when I was like, OK, I'm going to get better in time with these around me. It was almost like a light bulb moment almost of going... I don't have to pretend I'm allowed to be unwell and I'm allowed to talk to them about it. As you talk about it there, I mean, we it's been well publicised, the the level of male suicide rates in the, in the country. And being a northerner myself, I know what northern towns are like, traditional working class, the role of the man in in, in the family dynamic and going out, you you don't talk about your feelings. It's, it's still something that continues today, but it, it's getting better and here in your story, it sounds like at that time you couldn't really identify what was going on with you and probably your friends couldn't identify what was going on with you. But, you know, we're going to come on to talk about the charity, but I'm just wanting to ask you whether you think if that situation had occurred now that your friends and people around you would have been able to talk or you'd have been more willing to talk about it. It's difficult to, to say exactly. If you're asking me now, then absolutely I, I would not be scared to to have a conversation now. My dad's a, a bricklayer. He's worked on building sites his entire life since he was probably about 15 or something. And, you know, from that really hardened type of manliness, that's the softest fella in the world now. You know, we, we I think we've all learnt and we've all learnt how to, how to grow up. And as we've grown up, we've all learnt how to just be a little bit more, not necessarily being in touch with your emotions, it's just be allowing your emotions to exist. As mm. I was listening to a song yesterday, the new Sam Fender song, which is a Spit of You, and, and in that, he's talking about his dad. In, and the, the chorus is, is I, I can talk to anyone, but I can't talk to you. And he's talking about that, that idea that his dad is like this hardened man and that masculinity that comes with, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about my feelings. And that's his, that's his own his own dad that he feels he can't talk to and I think he, in it he talks about as a kid seeing his dad the first time or the only time seeing his dad cry was when when his nan died and his, and his dad kissed her head and you just think that's not uncommon now mm. it's not uncommon certainly uh, in generations past and there's a long way to go if we're coming off a long way really really have I've got two kids now and, and it's important to say as well that the girlfriend who found me at the time is now my wife and, and we've got two kids together and one day I'm going to have to tell my son, he's, he's nearly six and he, he knows that I work in mental health, he doesn't necessarily know what that is and one day I'm going to have to have a conversation with him that I'm not looking forward to at all where I, I tell him why I work in mental health and what happened to me and what I went through and what I nearly done and I'll, I'll probably carry some shame and some guilt even though I know that I shouldn't but I have faith. I have faith in him and his generation and probably generations before his and certainly generations after his to say, okay, no, that's that's fine. I get it. I understand. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And I have faith that it's it's changing uh, yeah. and that it'll continue to change. My dad would never have shown any emotion when I was younger now that like you get to an ad break. If there's anything for John Lewis... Floods it is. You know, he cannot. He cannot hold it in at all. 
anymore. And that's quite nice that like his dad wouldn't wouldn't have done that. His dad would never have. You know, that, that feels like there has been that shift in. I think my dad, uh, my dad cried when the Saudi takeover of Newcastle United happened recently. <laughs> to be honest, he's been waiting. Yeah. It's been a dark, dark few years, yeah. but it came out. It's Kenneth's turn to get the drinks in this week, so I'm going to let you know that you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Do More Good Pod, or if you're a professional business person, you can find us on LinkedIn too. There's a website, domoregood.uk, packed full with episodes, blog posts, details of the team and a link to the newsletter for your VIP content. Coming back, two pina coladas and a lager for me. Jake, we want to we want to get on. Look, I mean, we could sit here and talk to you all day about your, your amazing background and story and, and expect, you know, the story that we've just heard was was the catalyst for the sign that we can see behind you in terms of chasing the stigma, the, the charity and, and the hub of hope. Where did that idea manifest itself and how did it how did it come to fruition? So basically, as I said, I didn't know anything about mental health. Suddenly I've gone through major depression and anxiety. I've gone through a suicide attempt and I'm thinking, I do not know what to do. I, I didn't really have a, a good experience of getting help and support professionally. I one day decided that I'd lived a, a long time lying, pretending, keeping secrets about everything. And I just decided one day that I was going to move to move on in my recovery. I was going to openly talk about what I'd gone through. And it wasn't to help anyone. It wasn't. It was just to move on in my own recovery. So I put out tweets, literally laid it out there, said, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I have felt. This is what I've tried to do. This is how I've tried to do it. Nobody's got anything on me. I'm moving on. That's that. And just put it out there. And... Um, as a result of that, people started coming to me saying, I feel the same way. People I knew, people I didn't know, loads of people saying, I've been there, I've got, I've come through, I'm going through that, I know somebody who has. And then the story got picked up in the in the local press to begin with. And then at around the same time, Robin Williams took his own life and the media, as media often does, started to look for who's somebody who's tried to take their own life and is a comedian. So they landed on me and I was being asked by charities and other organisations, can can you go on television and talk about what you'd gone through or go on radio and talk about what you've gone through? And it was stuff like the Lorraine show and stuff. And at the time I was I was really vulnerable. You know, I was still twenty three. I wasn't I wasn't like much older or wasn't any older than than when I was when I tried to take my own life and I was going on, I was talking about these things and it felt really vulnerable, felt, didn't feel nice, but I, I was told, you know, it'll help people. But what I wasn't really told was that every time I'd done an interview, people would come to me. People would come to me asking me for help. You know, there, there may have been people going to <clears> charities, but there was a lot of people who were coming to me through my own social media or my email address, finding my details and were saying to me, I feel this way, I'm going through this, I'm suicidal, I need you to stop me from taking my own life. I was getting people messaging me or calling me and I had absolutely no idea what to do. Like, I, I just didn't know what to do, but what it did do is it gave me a purpose and it gave me a fire in my belly to say, you've got a responsibility. It's not about just talking about what you've gone through. It's try, let, let's, I saw an injustice and I was like, let's do something about this. And so I started to, to learn more about mental health. And as I said, I, 
I, I didn't want it to be about me. I saw it created a charity to say, well, take it away from me. So it's not just me telling my story, put it into a charity. And I started to learn more about it. And I started to learn particularly about suicide as well. And there was a statistic when we started the charity, which is almost five years ago now, which unfortunately remains around about the same, which is of all the people who die by suicide each year in the UK, which is around about 6,000, just over 6,000 lives. And their lives, it's important to remember that they are lives, that's just not a number. But of all the people who die by suicide every year in the UK, almost three quarters of them, of those people are not known to mental health services or haven't been seen within a year previous to their death. Three quarters, three quarters of people die without getting any help. And for me, I was like, there's, there's a fundamental problem there. Mm. And that's not okay. There's no excuse. There's no reason anyone can ever give me to justify that because people are dying without getting any help. And when people were coming to me saying, I need help or I'm going through this or, you know, my, my son or my dad or anybody's going through that, what should I do? I didn't know. I didn't know what to do. So that's why I said, well, I put out an appeal a couple of years ago and said, if you offer any mental health support anywhere in the country, just tell me who you are and I'll put it together in a list. It'll just be a list on my computer so that when people are coming to me asking me for help, I can tell them about the help and support. And then it was just it's through that really that I started to realise just how much help there was. And I didn't know about any of it. Mm. You know, I only knew Samaritans. I knew of mine. I don't think I knew that mine could had a phone line. And then suddenly there was loads coming through. And so what we decided to do was to put that list into, eventually the list grew into a website and then into a free downloadable app called The Hub of Hope. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to take the same concept that we have is that you can travel anywhere in this country, any of us now, get on the train, go to somewhere, a town, a city that you've never been to before in your life. But if you want a pizza or a kebab or a curry or a taxi, you go on an app and you find it. And you can live your entire life in a, in a city or a town and not know the mental health provision that's available to you. Never mind if you're traveling around. So I wanted to take that same instinct and, and, and really easy method to find local and national mental health support services. And fast forward four and a half years and the Hub of Hope is now, as you mentioned before, the biggest and most comprehensive mental health signposting tool of its kind in the UK. And the growth that we've seen even just in the last eight months has, has seen us now used on NHS UK. Just in the last five months, we've had over 75,000 people access the Hub of Hope just from NHS UK, just from NHS UK to the Hub of Hope in five months, 75,000 people. We're working now with Trust and NHS Trust, with other mental health charities, with emergency services, with Department of Health, basically just making help as easy as possible to find. But what we're importantly, what we're doing through the Hub of Hope is we're bringing all support together in one place. So it's not just NHS support, it's charities, it's third sector generally, it's private support, it's peer support. And what we want to do is we want to give people choice want to give people options to say it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and if you just kind of just sorry i'll, I'll end this point it's a long answer no, no, um, but if you look back at what i what i described before and how i wouldn't have gone and found that help that counselling myself 
if it wasn't offered to me on a plate and how I felt about medication and side note here but one of the biggest differences I think between physical and mental health and how we talk about it and educated around that in this country is that if if I was to say the word physical health you generally think of something positive you probably think of like you know physical health you think of exercising you think of a gym you think of eating well you think of looking after yourself you might think of an image of yourself and an aspirational image of yourself how you can be in peak physical health you see it as something positive but if you say the word mental health you only think of negative you only think of mental illness you think of depression or anxiety or schizophrenia or suicide we don't see mental health as that aspirational positive thing that we all have you know physical health PE is part of our everyday life in schools we all have that but mental health is only deemed as mental illness and that's how we separate and segregate people we suddenly have mental ill health and those who are mentally ill as one bracket and everybody else is 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 there whereas instead it should be we all have mental health which we all do and so That idea of medication, if I was physically unwell, I wouldn't question going to a doctor. I wouldn't question explaining how I felt. I wouldn't question the medication. If I went to a doctor and said, I feel this way, and the doctor says, have this medication, it'll help you feel better, I'd go, great, thank you so much. I'd I'd have it. And if it didn't work, I'd go back. And I'd say, that's not working, I'm having side effects, I'm not feeling well from it, or I don't think it's helping. And then if it gets really bad, I'll go to a hospital. But with our mental health, we don't trust or understand or know that process at all. We have all these misconceptions, which if you're not educating people, then those misconceptions are just going to naturally occur. We have to suddenly find, fill that gap and that void with whatever we can find. And so when I thought to myself, medication is something that I don't want, I was wrong in that, but not my fault because I'd never been educated. And when I came out of that counselling after being discharged, that wasn't for me. It wasn't for me at that time. But if I would have known that there was hundreds of other options for me, I could have found something that was right for me. Mm. And so in the Hub of Hope, we've got almost 4,000 services nationally, and that's growing by the day. And so for me, it's about giving people options, choices, and equipping people to know you can find what is right for you when you need it. Yeah. Hats off to you for, for what you've achieved, because it's such a simple idea. But I mean, the numbers that you've just talked about are in- incredible and I couldn't help but think back to my experience. And I volunteered at the Samaritans for a, for a few years. This was a few years ago. You realised actually doing that, how many people are out there, you know, struggling, not getting the support. And actually at the Samaritans, we had a pathway of different providers that we would signpost to. But there was nothing like the Hub of Hope that was localised to them. It was all the bigger names of maybe the bigger charities we didn't have anywhere where there was a directory, but I mean, something like that would, would have been incredible at, at that time, which leads me on to your question. I mean, you, you're talking about 75,000 people accessing it from the, the, the NHS. It's obviously really required, needed, especially after everything that's happened over the past 20 months. And, and we know it's well documented the impact that that's had on a number of people's mental health. Where do you go from here? Because I'm sure running that, you talked at the start before we started recording, you've got a team of six. How do you look at it as Jake Mills, the, the charity CEO now, and you've got trustees that you're accountable to, and you've got essentially a business that you need to kind of continue to push? How does Jake, the CEO, think about chasing the stigma now and 
the impact that you'll continue to have over the next couple of years? Well, Jake, the the shy comedian, is the one who is going, what are we doing? Like, how have we ended up here? Uh, <laughs> and we're completely winging it as we go. Aren't we all? Yeah, but then the, the CEO and the the person in charge of other people's mortgages, but also really importantly and crucially, uh, the person who's in charge of this database that's that's used by hundreds of thousands of people who rely on it, who rely on the information, who rely on it being correct, up-to-date, populated. For me, I won't rest until it is absolute common knowledge that if you are struggling, you go here. We know that we need consistent messaging. We need consistent signposting. And by that, what I mean is we need to move away from this idea of, of cherry picking five, ten different charities and saying to people, these are the lines that you need if you're struggling or moving away from saying that it's only going through this process. We need to, to be really, really consistent. Uh, and in order to be consistent, we have to work collaboratively. We have to work with as many organisations as we can. And that's what we're doing at the moment. We're partnering with some major organisations to become signposting partners so that they use the Hub of Hope as their signposting tool. We're doing that, as I say, with NHS trusts. And depending when this goes out, there might be uh, something relevant to the point you've just made. And it's trying to work with them. But also... It's trying to engage everybody. So the point that I made before uh, between segregating those mentally unwell or those struggling with their mental health and, and those who are well, that we need to move away from that. We have to move away from that and we have to engage everybody and we need everybody around the table. So for me, it's it's not putting the onus on people knowing about the services and going to the services to find the information, taking the onus away from people knowing about the hub of hope. How can we go where people are? How do we go to people and change environments around people? How do we put the hub of hope in front of them on the daily life? So we launched a campaign with uh, Network Rail. So we have uh, hub of hope posters in Network Rail stations up and down the country. You know, I went to London for the first time in a while a couple of weeks ago just walking through Houston you're seeing Hub of Hope posters there which is incredible we partnered with NCP car parks in car parks just getting that message out there on the back of tickets the posters up we've got a campaign with Hawthorne Brewery group as well going into pubs giving people messages where people are we, we're not afraid to go where people are looking at what are people eating what are people drinking how are people living give them that message there but as, as well, it's about educating people. And you mentioned at the top of this as well about the Ambassador Hope training programme. And the reason the Ambassador Hope training programme came about was because I was very aware of how organisations were were treating mental health training as if it was just like a tick, tick box. And mm-hmm. you'd have organisations who have like, I don't know, for argument's sake, 500 members of staff. They have like uh, 10 people trained in, in mental health training. And I was thinking, well, that's just stupid because you've got 490 members of staff who all have mental health, who have no understanding. Now, the training that those 10 people get is not stupid and it's great, but what about those left behind? So that's why we created the Ambassador Hope to be really a baseline level of, level of understanding. And I looked, as I was thinking, well, why wouldn't you do it? Because it's costly, because it's too long. It, you know, you'd have to take people 
off the shop floor or whatever for a couple of hours or a day. So I was like, well, let's make it cheap. Let's make it quick. You know, we'll do it in 40 minutes and let's just train everybody. So that's when we started going into organisations and train all their members of staff. You know, going to Everton Football Club, trained all 500 members of staff, including matchday stewards, the CEO, director of football, first team manager, going to uh, the DBS office, training 900 members of staff, construction sites. And as you said there, you know, preferred to play to the Premier League now, rolling that out. So again, it's about engaging everybody. It's not just, it's not just like, selecting a handful and above everything else it's not overcomplicating things mm. i can't pretend to be anything than just a, a bit of an annoying scouser you know that's who i am i am not a qualified mental health practitioner i'm not going to overcomplicate things we'll look at the simple the obvious easy ideas and as the charity that's what we have the, at the very core is lived experience and talking like people talk it's like the authenticity of it. Everything that you talked about in the first half of the show here is applicable to, to everything you've talked about in the second half around kind of educating, normalising, accelerating the opportunity to talk to people about it. All of it is authentic. And as you say, yeah, that works with somebody just being their, their true self. That's it. And, and what we want to do as well is, is to engage communities. You know, we have the tools we will never and I will never claim to have all the answers because I don't. But we want to collaborate with people and engage communities. And if we can give people the tools for them to educate their own communities or equip people within their communities to, to understand, then that's what we will do. We'll work with people to help them reach more people. We, we don't want to own this. We don't want to say this is us and we're the experts here because we're, we're not we've just created something that we can use and other people can use as part of their own work and, and their own messaging and we just want to engage as many people as we possibly can as you're saying there it might be con- quite a controversial statement but unfortunately it does feel that sometimes in in the sector is some organizations want to want to hold it and want to own things and want to say this is ours and you know we we've talked on this podcast with a number of people from from charities and that collaboration message certainly seems to be one of the positives that's come out of the last 20 months particularly within the within the charity sector is that we're seeing more organizations being more open looking at those almost walled gardens are kind of breaking down and they're starting to say well actually how do we work together in the greater good which i think we can we probably all agree is is a, is a positive thing I would say that that's the biggest difference I've noticed. As I said, Chasing the Stigma is going to be five years uh, in December and the Hub of Hope will be four and a half. And I'd say that we've probably spent the first three and a half years trying to prove that we're not a competition, uh, trying to prove that we're not a, a rival and you know, trying to say to people that you can't allow politics and rivalry and competition to fly in the face of actually helping the people who were out there. But I think through the pandemic, a lot of people were like, okay, we can't do everything. Let's see what we can do. I think a lot of bureaucracy kind of dropped a little bit. That competition, that rivalry dropped a little bit. And obviously then we had a couple of years behind us and being able to prove the concept. So just two points that I'd make as well, though, to anybody who is listening, is one that we're trying to build this and we want as much help as we possibly can if you have a look and you think well there's no services by me or 
I know services that aren't on there, tell us, because we need to know, we need to be building this across the country. Tell people about the Hub of Hope, not just to use it, but to register the services on there. Any service can register for free to be on the Hub of Hope. We have a vetting process, we'll go through a quality assurance process before anybody goes on there live. But we we take applications for anybody who's offering mental health support. So work with us. And the other thing is that all these amazing statistics and and partnerships and all the things that we're doing we're currently not funded by anybody uh, so we, we don't receive any any funding any grant funding or, or any statutory funding at all from government nhs nothing like that we, we currently are having to be as self-sustainable as we can so again work with us help us we're just you we're just ordinary people trying to make a difference with lived experience as the reason we're doing that mm. There you go. If anyone yeah. is listening, amazing. You've got to where you've got to without any of that, you know, major funding. And I'm sure you've got some fantastic partners. I mean, you've touched on a few today. I'm sure there's a lots of organizations out there that would be willing to kind of support. I know they're difficult to find. You know, we speak to lots of charity fundraisers. Everyone's got a pressing cause or, a, you know, a new campaign or whatever they need to go to. But yeah, wish you lots of luck, Jake. And, and just, you know, thank you for, for kind of sharing that. And I'm, I mean, I went on the Hub of Hope last night for ahead of today to kind of have a look you know i just saw services in my local area that i had no knowledge of and actually ultimately i guess i guess that's what it's about so yeah thank you very much for the work that you do yeah um, it's always good when you, when somebody says they went on it and it worked that's <laughs> yeah, good exactly. was a bonus. <laughs> yeah especially with my wi-fi in here that's for sure um look jake we're, we're gonna let you go soon but um yeah, thank you for your honesty. We have got a couple of questions that we'd like to drop in at the end of uh, our podcasts, which just gives us a little bit more of a look into who Jake Mills, the man is. So, James, do you want to crack on with the first one? Yeah, come on then, I'll go first. And this is this is quite a big question, really, considering the uh, story that you've told us today. But if you could transport back in time and meet your 20-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give and why? Uh, I'd say just give up on Everton. <laughs> Honestly, just uh, just leave it. It's not worth it. Oh, it's a tough time at the moment, isn't it? But then yeah, down the road, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I I would say, I'd say to 20, 20 year old Jay Rafa Benitez, right? Go easy on him now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't, don't just be careful what you tweet about him now because someone will pull that up in a few years' time. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Right. Second question. Can you tell us about one life hack or a productivity tool or a habit or a skill or something that you've taught yourself recently that you think everybody needs to know about? Uh, It's not a life hack or a skill. I don't know about you guys, but during lockdown, we kind of treated lockdown like that that week between Christmas and New Year where you're just like (laughs) cheese for breakfast and and Baileys for for (laughs) breakfast. <laughs> but that for 18 months and one of the things that I discovered I thought I made it up I've googled it since and apparently other people know about it was I made Noki carbonara right it's just it's the best thing that you can ever do so you're just making the carbonara sauces if you normally would with your, with your bacon or whatever and you know make it as creamy and cheesy as you can and then you just lash in Noki oh my word we had it three nights in a row <laughs> breakfast lunch and dinner yeah, like, yeah, should we have that again yeah go on it's uh, it's amazing so uh, i would recommend that to anybody 
I went into lockdown and said to my wife, I'm going to come out of this in the best shape of my life. And I made my wife take before picture of me, took the top off, get, get before picture. And then when she took the after picture, I had to swap them around and pretend that the, <laughs> the after was the before. <laughs> Recognise that one. Final question for you. As a podcast that is focused around people doing more good, what is your favourite story or inspiring individual you have met on your journey or recently, who has done something good for others? Oh man, that's a, that's an incredibly difficult mm-hmm. question to uh, to narrow down. But what I would say, and this isn't a cop out, hopefully, but one of the absolute joys of what I do now, uh, particularly with the hope of hope, is meeting so many people who have created services or created support from a place of loss and a place of hurt and a place of pain who have gone through something and have decided to to do something about it to prevent other people having to go through that themselves and to not wait around for money and not wait around for resources and help from anyone else just doing it because they want to do good and they want to prevent somebody and it's just just you know just there's a lot there's a lot of organizations but just one that just brings to mind right now is an organization called paul's place which is based in liverpool and the reason why they've come to mind is because they uh, have recently just won a queen's award for voluntary services and Paul's place was set up by three people, Kathy, uh, who lost their brother, Paul, uh, to suicide, and, and a couple called uh, Joe and Agnes, who are just salt of the earth, scousers, lovely, lovely people, and lost their son, Paul, to suicide as well. They are people that I, I don't think they would mind me saying, would never have, have known anything about this world that they suddenly have found themselves in. And when they needed support, they needed bereavement support, they needed suicide bereavement support, and there wasn't any, there was none. So they created it, and they've built this service, which is absolutely unbelievable, and it's just won uh, a Queen's Award for for volunteers and and voluntary sector. And, you know, it's people like those who who are doing good from a place of, of absolute despair, and we're constantly seeing them. So... Yeah, it's it's really, it's one of the best things about my job is being able to see these people and hear about more and more people like that every single day. Amazing. Nice. Well, that's such a nice note to wrap it on, Jake. Thank you again for, for your time. We really appreciate it. Wish you lots of luck with everything that you're going to want to achieve in the in the coming years. And if anyone wants to find out more about the organisation or, or maybe get in touch, where, where would you point them to? Yeah, so it's uh, it's all chasing the stigma on uh, on all your social media stuff. Uh, you can go to chasingstigma.co.uk for our website, and if you need help and support, download the Hub of Hope app and your app store for completely free, or visit hubofhope.co.uk. Brilliant. Are you on TikTok yet? Uh, no, not that. Or I've got our <laughs> social media team who's saying, would you do some uh, you know some TikToks or some uh, reels? I'm like, absolutely not. No, uh, <laughs> somebody else too. <laughs> Good. Well, look, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much again, James. Have you got any final thoughts? Uh, it was it was great to have the the, the Dalai Lama of, of mental health on today. I'm usually stuck with the uh, the Pat Sharper podcasting, so it made a nice change. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe you'll get a call about that gig sometime soon. <laughs> uh, all right. Cheers, then, guys. We'll speak soon. All the best. Thank you. Cheers.
Just before we go, can we ask you a favour? If you enjoyed this episode and you made it this far after all and want to help us reach more people and attract more guests, then we'd really love a review on iTunes. Alternatively, if you haven't got anything nice to say, then say it in an email. Get in touch at contact at domoregood.uk and let us know how we can improve the show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story of someone doing more good.